This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. Thank you for being with us. This show is, in my view, up front, up close, and by the book. Author, author, Maureen Jennings is arguably Canada's most prolific and successful detective novelist. Her books inspired the internationally acclaimed television series The Murdoch Mysteries, now entering its 15th season. Encore, encore, the award-winning author Maureen Jennings joins us now in conversation. What an honor to have you with us, Maureen. Thank you for asking me. So where did your book's lead character, the main protagonist, where did Detective Murdoch come from? What was your inspiration? Initially, uh, it started because a, a very dear friend of mine, an actor, said he was working with a theater company that wanted a mystery play. And he tossed this out to me. You love mysteries. You love the theater. Why don't you write a play? So, of course... Uh, so I did. Anyway, uh, and the initial character was based on a real detective called John Wilson Murray, and that was fine. And then I got so hooked into the Victorian Toronto era that I decided to go into a novel, and I didn't want to use a real person because it's a bit limiting. So I created a character called William Murdoch, and that's how it started. And he's been pacing and doing duty in Toronto ever since. I know that history is one of your passions. So is research. How did you combine the two when you were formulating the character, but also figuring out, for instance, the forensic techniques that were used back then? How did you put all of that together? That is... I thought it was going to be easier, and it is in a way, because forensic technology now changes literally monthly. So if I was going to put out a book, by the time it's published, it's changed. So I thought, okay, this will, I'll go back to a time period where it was more fixed and uh, less technological. And that's true. That's, uh, that's how I... It, it was true back then in the late 1890s, early 1900s, much less technology, but the same need to uh, observe, deduce, you know, good old Sherlock techniques there. So I I actually enjoyed that and uh, put that into the novels and then just went on discovering more and more things, which it never stops, thank goodness. What kinds of techniques were used back then? You know, I think about today, and and there's no comparison because there's technology involved in absolutely everything we do Mm -hmm. in in crime, including Mm -hmm. DNA testing. But back then, things like fingerprinting and blood tracing, how was that done? Well, back then, I found this very interesting because back then it had a lot to do with how much strength there was in a microscope. So, for instance, someone could say, here is a drop of blood. We know it's blood for sure. But they couldn't tell uh, whether it was mammal blood or reptile blood or what. So that was a rather interesting point. All they could say was, this is blood. And then, of course, it was quite a bit later where 
we were able to distinguish human blood and what kind of human blood, but that was quite a bit later. And as I say, the thing that intrigued me was that this was dependent on how much power the actual microscopes had back then. And that, that just got better and better and better. So the blood was an issue, fingerprints started to become legitimate. At first it was like, oh yeah, sure. But then it became legitimate. Fibers were able to be examined. Not that much different in a way, but very, very different in another way. And what about good old-fashioned questioning? You know, you think back to that time in the late 1800s and and conducting an interview with the suspected criminal, with the perpetrator, that must have been extremely important when there weren't other tools at a police officer at a detective's fingertips. Well, I think that's still true. I think even though we're inundated with technology and advances in forensic science, I think this always comes down to this, the intuition of the detective, frankly. And uh, sometimes it sounds like, oh, no, no, we can't rely on that, but we can. And I think experienced detectives then and now relied a lot on uh, their own observations of what was happening, say, in the interview, for example, uh, and their own intuitions about whether or not this person was telling the truth. And that, by the way, I did discover quite early, there was uh, one of the uh, scientists developed uh, an instrument which measured um, the reaction to a person's reaction physiologically to questioning. And that evolved into the so-called lie detector that we use now. But it's the same thing. It's very hard to hide our own physical reactions questions we don't like. It doesn't mean you're lying if you if you get upset about something. It just means you don't like the question. <laughs> it's fascinating. I always have an image of how an author puts together a book, and in your case, mystery and its crime. And so you, from start to finish, this is your baby. So how do you figure out what the crime is going to be, and how do you determine the solution to it? And physically, what does your war room look like, your writing room? What does it look like as you're, as you're giving birth to a book? Oh, oh, it's a bit of a mess, <laughs> but it's an it's a orderly mess, if I can put it that way. I, I, I still love writing. I do all of my preliminary work with pen and paper. I, I buy very expensive pens, I must admit, <laughs> and I buy very expensive notebooks, but it works for me. So I plan out. Some people say they don't do outlines. I do. I found when I, the few times that I didn't, I just wasted a lot of time. So it's like a journey. I'm going to say, I'm going from here to Ottawa, and I know I'm going to end up in Ottawa. Along the way, I might take a few detours, but basically... I know where I'm going. And by, when I know that sufficiently, then I'll actually start, I'll move to my laptop and start uh, t- typing up my story. 
but initially, definitely, I, I, I love that whole initial period. And my books stack up and my notebooks stack up and, <laughs> and so on. And, and the actual creation of the crime that is about to be committed and then solved, of course. But where does that come from in you? I hate to think. <laughs> my agent, an agent, I don't have her anymore, but she once said to me, from what corner of your brain do these things come from? I thought, oh, my God. Uh, well, I, I do try to uh, go to, again, reality, like um, stories that were true for the time period, for example. I keep that to a minimum, I must admit. There's, got, there's a crime, the stakes are very high, but the detective is the one who's reestablishing order in the world, I must admit. So I don't know where it comes from. Don't ask me. What was it like and what is it like to see Murdoch on television, to see Detective William Murdoch come to life I know that you had a great hand in it, creative consultant on the TV series, and you wrote an episode a year at least. I'm not sure what your position is right now with the series, but how did it feel as the author of this incredible series to see it come to life on the small screen and the big screen? It's even now, even after 15 years and uh, three movies of the week, I'm still sort of in awe and I feel very honored that this has happened. And recently I, I got a very touching email. Actually, sorry, it was a letter, letter uh, from someone who said that her daughter had loved the show and her daughter died way too young. And she was thanking me for the fact that in those last, times of her life, she was, uh, Murdoch helped her get through it. I was very touched by that. I thought, my goodness. And it's obviously in TV, it's such a collaboration. I mean, I pushed it out there, but it's been taken up by many, many people who have done a super job. So I, I, I am quite seriously touched and grateful that it's still out there. Even when I get mad that I did it wrong. But I <laughs> I'm sure that could happen from time to time. So your main protagonist in the Murdoch Mysteries, a man, you've switched gears a little bit. In 2019, you published a book, had a book published called Heat Wave, and it's part of the Paradise Cafe Mystery Series. November Rain came out in 2020, and your main protagonist is a female this time, Charlotte Frayne. So why the change in gender? Well, it's so much easier. It really is. A I, I, couple of reasons. First of all, um, I didn't want to stay in the Victorian period. For one thing, it's very limiting if I did want to have a female protagonist and continue with the police procedures. It wasn't possible. So, and then I began to realize 1936 was an amazing time in in our society so okay 1936 then i wanted to go back to a female and i could have had her in the police department but it would still have been a pretty limited role so i made her a private investigator so she's got a little more freedom to 
investigate, I guess. And it's been fun. I've enjoyed that. <laughs> I've enjoyed writing as a female. And we have enjoyed reading uh, your books, no matter who's the lead, whether it's a man or a woman. So I have to ask you this before I let you go. Maureen Jennings, have you ever wanted to be a private investigator, either in the late 1800s or in 1936 or in 2021? Not really. But when I was a, a teenager... And looking around, you know, growing up and say, what do you want to do? I wanted to be a policewoman very badly. And then I remember this for some reason. I can't remember why now, but that police officer visited the house. Maybe we'd had a fire. I don't know. And I said, oh, I want to be a policewoman. And he said, well, you've got to grow a bit taller before <laughs> that will happen. <laughs> very, very, uh, uh, well, I was, didn't grow any taller. And at the time, there was a height limit. You had to be at a certain height. So that was the end of that dream. <laughs> but I think I've always been interested in that world. But I'm not sure I'd be, I don't know if I'd be good at it anyway. So no, not exactly. I haven't exactly wanted to be a private investigator, no. Is there a little bit of you in Charlotte Frayne in the Paradise Cafe Mystery Series? Do you think just a little bit of Maureen Jennings? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so, yeah. <laughs> it's, hard not, it's hard not to do that. I mean, clearly, I want my characters to be independent. And, and in Charlotte's case, I was able to make her tall. I like that. She's tall. Uh, but uh, it's hard not to get some of yourself in there somewhere. And uh, I'm sure that's true in Murdoch and the other characters that I've done as well, even though they're guys. No, I have another female, that's right. <laughs> and that's definitely a lot like me. You, you know, I, I just have to thank you for being you. You are an award-winning author and a captivating interviewee. And thank you, Maureen Jennings, for... Joining us in conversation, it has just been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Anne. You too. We turn the page on crime and mystery. Coming up next, historical fiction. This is In Conversation with Anne Romer. Is there someone you want to learn more about? Drop us a line. Info at 1059theregion.com. Anne Romer will be right back on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 1059 The Region. Welcome back. Best-selling author, enormously successful and read the world over, Canada's very own Jennifer Robson says this about herself on her website. An academic by background, a former editor by profession, and a lifelong history nerd, I am lucky enough to now call myself a full-time writer. Well, I should say, she has so far written six incredibly engaging novels set during and after the two world wars. Somewhere in France, After the War is Over, Moonlight Over Paris, Good Night from London, The Gown, and Our Darkest Night. Jennifer may call herself a history nerd. I proudly call myself a Jennifer Robson nerd, having read each and every one of her books not once but twice. The celebrated author joins us now in conversation. Welcome, Jennifer. Oh, well, well, thank you so much, Anne. I, I wish you could see the smile on my face right now, coming, those words of praise coming from someone like you. I, you know, I, I admire you so much for, for, for your work, and, and uh, I'm just blushing. I oh, really am. As am I, and I, I'm such a fan of yours. 
you've written six books. You've contributed to a, another. I love the fact that two things, historical novels. So you set your work during times of trial and trouble around the two world wars. Your main protagonists, for the most part, are women, and they are strong women at that. Where did all of that come from? I think, you know, I think a lot of it comes from the women who raised me. So uh, my mother, uh, her name was Wendy Robson. Um, she died when I was only 21. Uh, nonetheless, had a, a huge, huge uh, influence on me. She was a family court lawyer and later a, a provincial court judge. Uh, in central Ontario, and she was uh, proudly uh, called herself a feminist at a time when that wasn't the most usual thing for for a mom to to be or at least to admit to publicly. And she always uh, encouraged me and my sister Kate uh, to to focus on the things that were important to her, such as uh, getting a first rate education, uh, pursuing a career that was meaningful to us. And in that, she was inspired by my late grandmother, Nikki Moyer, who was a journalist back in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, so even more of a rarity in her time. Uh, and she was a newspaper woman, that's what she called herself. And she worked uh, in Vancouver uh, during the war years. And, um, and she, as well, was such an influence on me, uh, so much so that I based the character Ruby in my book, Good Night from London, uh, partially on, on my grandma. And your father, an historian, I mean, that must have been a huge influence, and it, it certainly fueled your fire when it came to researching and setting the scene and the stage for your incredible novels. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. My dad, so Stuart Robson, I'm sure there are people listening uh, who, who, who were in his classroom uh, at Trent over the years. Uh, I think he taught there for about 40 years, and and again, you know, history was not something remote or distant or, or really even, a, a, you know, something that was to be endured in school. Uh, for us, it was a, a lively source of conversation. Um, you know, I, I grew up listening to my dad and my mom talking about the great historical moments that, that uh, you know, influenced uh, you know, the, the country that we have since become. Um, and, you know, the, the two world wars uh, really had uh, such a profound uh, you know, influence on, on Canada, um, you know, just on the, on the country that we were becoming. And I think, you know, my, my, on both sides, my great grandparents were caught up in, in, the, uh, in the war as combatants. And I just, from the earliest that I can remember, I found it interesting. I was never the kid who thought that history was boring in school. Mm -hmm. And this is my way of, of trying to make history interesting to, to everyone else. You are highly educated, studied French literature and modern history as an undergrad at King's University College at Western. You obtained your doctorate in British Economic and Social History, University of Oxford. While you were there, you were a Commonwealth scholar and a doctoral fellow. Do you think that that kind of education and the depth of it was to your advantage when you started writing, or was it perhaps even a bit of a detriment? You know, you make a fine point because, as we know, academic writing isn't typically known for uh, its entertainment value. It's it's more the kind of uh, stuff that you have to plow through uh, and you sometimes prop your eyelids open. I will say that 
uh, when I was at Oxford in particular, what I learned how to do was conduct uh, research. Uh, I, I learned how to do the detective work uh, to uncover the, you know, the, the mysteries of the, of the past. And since I typically talk about, in my books, I focus on the lives of women and increasingly on the lives of women who are not part of, say, the elite, you know, upper class, it does take quite a lot of digging sometimes to figure out, uh, you know, to get all the details of what an ordinary person's life was like in the past. Uh, because, you know, the, the ordinary people, and I include myself in that, our lives aren't typically the, you know, the, the focus of much attention. And uh, to, to, to get to the heart of what was, what was a typical day in someone's life uh, at a particular place and time in history, uh, sometimes that's, you know, I think that's actually much harder to research than uh, someone who's trying to uncover, say, the antecedents of World War I. Um, and and so I, I credit my education for for you know giving me uh, the 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 tools I need to do the research and the writing you know I'm learning as I go that's what I would say. <laughs> You know, it's interesting what you say about the everyday person that flies in the face of what is of your six novels that I've read twice. My favorite is, and if I'm allowed to tell you this, it's somewhere in France. So it's Lady Elizabeth Neville Ashford Lilly. She breaks free of her rigid aristocratic life. She becomes an ambulance driver in the Great War, takes her close to the Western Front, and of course she meets a dashing Scottish surgeon from a poor family at a field hospital in France. I mean, it's the making of just the most incredibly layered and textured and beautiful book. And and it's not a typical story, I'm perhaps, I, I don't think, but there your research will tell you yes or no. But I'll tell you something. It drew me in and it kept me there and I had to read it twice. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, that was, you know, it's my first book. Uh, it's the book where, you know, that I, I, I taught myself, uh, I would say, how to write the book, which means that I wrote and rewrote and rewrote it many, many times. And it, there, it had a kind of tangled past the publication in that when I first wrote it uh, and completed it, which is around 2009, uh, nobody uh, was really interested in publishing books about the First World War, uh, particularly something that was told from a woman's point of view, which was the, my entire purpose in writing the book, was to, to discover what it was like to be a woman living through those times. You know, there are many, many wonderful historical novels written from the point of view of the soldiers uh, and the officers, but I wanted to know what it was like to be a woman living through those years. Um, and, and what it took really for it to get published was the smash hit of Downton Abbey. I'll be perfectly honest, uh, you know, that that show <laughs> led to, to my, my first book being published. And uh, at some point, I, I think, I need to write Julian Fellows a letter and just say thank you. <laughs> By the way, you have no idea who I am, but I, I owe you, to a certain degree, my career. You may um, be surprised. For, for... He, he might know exactly who you are. You might be very surprised about that, Ms. Robson. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer, through your research and the writing of your amazing books, have you ever felt that you wanted to live in the period about which you were writing? I think briefly, I will say I'm a bit of a germaphobe and, and uh, uh, it, it just is the sense of, 
I, I'm not sure I'd want to live in a period where uh, antibiotics are not available yeah, yeah. and modern uh, forms of disinfection. Uh, I just studied a little too much about pub- the history of public health when I was an undergrad. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I, the one time I was writing was, uh, it was my third book, Moonlight Over Paris. And, uh, and to be in Paris in the mid-1920s, I think would have been really quite glorious. Um, and and it, just the people you could run into and uh, just to see the city then before the cars had taken it over, uh, before mass tourism had really arrived, I think would have been just wonderful. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, my latest book, uh, Our Darkest Night is, is set in Italy in in the 1940s, obviously a, a pretty terrible time in many respects. Uh, but the the place it's set in uh, is familiar to me because it's where my husband's family is from. And in some ways, life hasn't changed that much uh, in in you know on the farms where his 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 aunts and uncles and cousins still live. And so I've been able to get a taste of that of what it was like, say, 50, 75 years ago. Uh, just by by visiting uh, uh, our family there, and and that you know that's enough. And I also don't have to worry about you know the Nazis, which oh, is true. a really big plus. I would yeah, have to say. Absolutely. Before we say goodbye, can you tell us the working title of the novel that you are presently preparing for all of us who are so anxious to get yeah. the next Jennifer Robson book? What is yeah. the title? What's the working title? It's called Coronation Year. Uh, it's set, as, as you could imagine, in 1953 in London. And the setting is a, is a little hotel, an ancient hotel, uh, that finds itself on the parade route for the coronation procession. And all of the, 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 you know, the implications, both good and bad, uh, uh, for the people, uh, the proprietor, uh, who's a young woman, and the people who work with her and who stay at her hotel. I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> Many of us around the world cannot wait. International best-selling <laughs> author of historical fiction, Jennifer Robson, thank you so much for joining us in conversation. It means so much. Thank you, Anna. I'm just deeply honored to be speaking with you. Jennifer Robson, Maureen Jennings, author, author. Follow In Conversation with Ann Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.